You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. I am Angie, and today I will be talking with Gibbs Kuguru, who is an expert shark wrangler and scientist from Kenya. I'm so excited to be featuring Gibbs on the podcast today. We'll be talking all about his shark wrangling skills, of course, and his PhD work, which is helping conserve species of shark all across East Africa and all over the world. And here at All Creatures Podcast, we are celebrating the month-long Shark Fest, which is featured on National Geographic, and it began July 2nd, and it runs all month long. Gibbs is featured as a shark expert and scientist this month on Nat Geo's Shark Fest programming, When Sharks Attack 360. So we'll definitely be talking all about his experience filming that. So tuning in all the way from Utrecht, Netherlands today, Gibbs, are you out there? Hello? Hey, I am here somewhere in the world. Uh, I was gonna say, I, I thought, yeah, I thought maybe you'd be in Kenya, but yeah, you're in the Netherlands today. You're a a, a globetrotter. I am. I actually, I've been a Dutch resident uh, for the last four years, and uh, I love it here. It's a great place to live. Well, I've been to Amsterdam, and from what I can remember, I, it was a beautiful city. I loved it, and I would love to explore more of the Netherlands when I get a chance. It's it's great. You know, the good thing about Amsterdam is it it is a big city, but it feels like a small town because, you know, you, you know, your baker, you know, your butcher and everyone kind of just feels really close to home, down to earth. So, yeah, I would say it was, like it was a walking cities, city, too. And biking, you could get around pretty easily. Exactly. You know, that that's like the big thing is like if you if you like a big city, but don't really want uh, the, you know, rigmarole of having to, like, get on this insane train journey that lasts an hour just to get to work, then Amsterdam's a place for you. But I've also been following the Kenyan coastline. I love all things ocean, oh, yeah. beaches, and wildlife. And I have been to Nairobi's airport as I was flying through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't spent as much time in Kenya as I need to, and especially on their coastline. And I also want to get uh, over to the Lewa Conservancy. And I've spent time in Tanzania and in Zambia and South Africa, but Kenya in the coastline, and then of course Lewa, where my grubby zebras are, definitely on my bucket list. So I feel all like I'm going to say are sharks and white sand beaches. I, yeah, well, the, I think that's the beaches are phenomenal. That's what I've been seeing following these Kenyan coastline uh, social media companies. I'm like, holy cow, get me there right now! It is insanely beautiful. It's unimaginable actually it feels like one of those like worlds you see on star wars almost you know like it is just all 
like pristine beaches, beautiful, colorful coral reefs, warm water, some whale sharks. Uh, we get large whales as well. So that's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like I have to sell it anymore. No, I just, you just don't. go. <laughs> Definitely. That has everything for <laughs> sure. Well, I need to hear more about your background. So did you grow up in Kenya? And you said recently you moved to the Netherlands. So can you give us a little bit of history, Gibbs, about uh, how you got to be a, a shark expert with National Geographic? Yeah, right. Uh, so this is kind of a convoluted story, but I'll try and simplify it as much as possible. But I've always been a wildlife guy. And that's just because when I grew up in Kenya, my parents always exposed us to some of the wild spots we have in Kenya. And, and there are some of the most prolific wild spots that you have in the world, but they were just in my backyard. So, you know, growing up, I didn't think, oh, this is something so truly special. But uh, it's those experiences I felt like really gave me that, that itch, that drive to go and become a wildlife scientist. Even though it's not like I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. I just, I didn't even think that was a job um, at the time. So I had no idea that I was really going to go into this. And also just, you know, when I think about Kenya and, and the experiences that I had growing up there, um, and, and especially in the context of venturing away from it, I really realized that there's not that much wilderness left in the world. And we have so few wild spots left, which, you know, makes me even more grateful for those very, you know, unique childhood experiences that I had. Since then, uh, moving away, I, I lived in Arkansas uh, for four years, and I lived in South Africa for six years, traveled around uh, some places in South America and South Asia. Um, and then I ended up here in the Netherlands and currently doing my PhD on sharks in the Maldives. Yes, and you're doing genomics too, which we're going to dive into I'm mm -hmm. sorry, pardon the pun, but mm -hmm. I, <laughs> yes, that is, uh, wow, that's such a, it, it's such an amazing story as far as moving all around and learning about all different types of wildlife all over the world. And then, of course, settling in on sharks. And so, Gibbs, I have to ask, was there like an aha moment of wanting to work with sharks in particular or marine life? Or, or were you just more of a wildlife lover in general? I mean, despite loving wildlife, if you had asked a young Gibbs, do you want to work with sharks or marine animals? It would have been a hard no. Um, okay, interesting. To be honest, and, you know, yeah. sharks were, were scary. And I watched Jaws because it came on a national television every couple of years. So we would catch a glimpse of, you know, Bruce the shark. And that really scared me. And I felt like, yeah, I would never want to be caught dead in the water. Okay, poor choice of words, but but I also also it only made matters worse. My older brother uh, he used to tease me whenever I was swimming in the kiddie pool. He'd yell, "My shark in the water!" You know, while I was just swimming around. And of course, I was you know my imagination took over, and I was terrified of it. And I would jump out of the water so fast, but by the time I hit the pavement, I was completely dry. And and I honestly, I felt like. It, it wasn't, um, it didn't dawn on me that, you know, that sharks was even possibility, like you could safely interact with them. So, you know, I, I like to think back on those memories and laugh a little bit and think, man, you have no idea what you're going to get yourself into. 
Uh, I mean, the sharks did get a bad rap. I grew up with Jaws as well. And it wasn't until one of my college classes where I actually talked about how wildlife and some of these films can really, I don't know if exploit is the right word, but definitely give the wrong interpretation or the wrong perception of an animal that can be life-lasting for several people. Have you heard of the uh, the Jaws effect? No. I think I might have had that, though. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, the Jaws effect is this psychological term used to describe how people think about issues. And it's oftentimes when you have a fictional portrayal of an issue that actually informs how you think about a real issue that's happening. And of course, Jaws touches upon shark attacks. And now everyone's impression of shark attacks is based off of Jaws. It's yeah, it's 48 this year and till this day has had such a lasting impression on people. And I think it does play into a fear of a lack of understanding, a a fear from a lack of understanding that we have of sharks. And yeah, I think that's also part of my job, I feel like, is to is to try and tell as many positive stories about sharks as possible, because, you know, just telling people that sharks are not dangerous, man-eating killers is not enough. I think it's you've got to go that extra mile. You've got to take people with you, um, share your experiences and your stories, uh, and hope that at some point people will stop fearing sharks for no reason, essentially. Well, Gibbs, yeah, you touched on something that's very real to so many people. I and mean, we're going to talk all about how you are undoing some of these stereotypes and these myths uh, with National Geographic this month when you're featured on When Sharks Attack 360. So we'll talk mm-hmm. all about that. But I was wondering when you were a kid, you mentioned, of course, you watched the infamous Jaws, but were you able to see any other National Geographic programming or documentaries that helped you get excited about wildlife or marine life? Yeah, for sure. I can, I can kind of remember getting National Geographic on TV in Kenya when I was about eight or 10. And I would really only watch the wildlife documentary section because everything else didn't seem that interesting, to be honest, for me at that age. Um, but wildlife was accessible. And that's what I, um, I felt like was uh, something that I could watch and understand as an eight to 10 year old very easily. And honestly, the, my favorite programs back then were watching shows that had predations in them because uh, a good number of them were obviously filmed in, filmed in Kenya. So it's like, yeah, I get to see this happening in the country I was born. And, and again, it didn't seem that crazy. But then now that I haven't lived in Kenya for almost 15 years or so, I'm, I look back and I'm like, whoa, I, I had that right there. Like I could just drive for an hour away from my house and then watch lions hunt zebras. How often does that happen? <laughs> well, yeah. And like the grubby zebras, that's, there's only about 2,500 of them left and they're only in Kenya. I mean, mm-hmm. that. So yes, it is a very, very magical place and an inspirational place uh, for sure. So how do you get from Kenya to Arkansas to becoming a shark wrangler? I heard you were a shark wrangler. I was wondering if you could touch and that and then when your when your eyes started to open about shark and shark biology and shark interactions did you have a a story about interacting with them where he said yes i i do think I, i'm okay getting out of the boat and wrangling them 
Yeah. Uh, so my start with shark wrangling, I got to give credit to my supervisor for my bachelor's degree in Arkansas, Dr. Wakefield. So I was studying medicine at the time. And I'll be honest with you, I was not very good at it. Um, it was it was not that it was Well, the like, world but... thanks you for not being good at medicine. Your, your, your tail <laughs> oh went God. to uh, a great purpose as well. So, Yeah, can you imagine that? Like the malpractice suits that I'd be dealing with at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they'd Yikes. be like, Gibbs, you're not supposed to wrangle these patients. Come on. Yeah, so, there's something yeah. scarier than Jaws, mm -hmm. and that's Gibbs with a scalpel. My God, that's amazing. <laughs> yes. No, but uh, yeah, so so I again, I wasn't, it's not that it was a bad study, but I just wasn't into it. And I think that's also okay to admit. And uh, and Dr. Wakefield saw that I wasn't into it. And so he gives me this this brochure that says, come dive with sharks in South Africa. And they had this great white jumping out of the water. And it was, it just seemed like, as I was reading it, it was like a fever dream. Like, there's no way this is real. But I was thinking about it. I was thinking, actually, this could be fun. But sh number one, sharks are dangerous. Uh, I'm scared of the ocean. I don't swim very well. I don't dive at all. And this, this could be that tragic, fateful decision that led me onto the path of you know, self-destruction. But isn't that what college is for, really? <laughs> yeah, experimentation. You're right. I, I, so I did exactly by the books. I experimented with my life. And, uh, and honestly, it turned out to be one of the best decisions I've ever made. And, and that, and, you know, I got to give credit, first of all, like I said, to Dr. Wakefield, but also just, you know, I feel grateful to the sharks in a way. There are those first few moments that I spent with sharks on the boat, of course, riddled with fear at the very beginning. And then when you see these sharks, you get in the cage and your conceptions about what these animals are supposed to be are, you know, they dissolve so quickly because the truth is that potent that it is not just a man-eating killer. This is an animal that is, is interacting with this environment. It wants to, you know, it's curious about what's going on around it. It wants to survive. And, and it has personalities, its own personality. These, these animals are unique in that way. And you can't help but feel a kinship to them in some way. So I think that's, that's sort of what gave me like the resolution to just be like, this is it. I am only going to be a shark scientist from here on out. Wow. I, I love that story because so many people reach out to me, especially students and they're always like, Oh, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I know I love animals or I think I want to help animals. And, and I was very similar where, I thought I wanted to become a veterinarian and then I shadowed a veterinarian and I like fainted and cried. <laughs> it was a hot mess. I was just like, nice. I'm like, this is not for me, obviously. And not many people are born exactly knowing what they want to do 100% and then they go do it. And to those out there that have that, kudos. Like, that's awesome. But mm -hmm. most people in their late teens and 20s and of course, even later on in adulthood are not sure what they want to be when they grow up or how they want to make a living. And and I just love that your story shows that ebb and flow and that it's not always a linear path to get you there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's you just have to take a leap of faith and then learn what you like, what you don't like, and, and then go from there. And that you're just a great icon of like you can 
be studying one thing, medicine, wasn't a good fit. And now you're diving with sharks and on National Geographic and getting your PhD in shark biology or genomics. So yes, it's a very inspiring story, Gibbs. So thank you for sharing that with us. I got to ask though, how did you go from fainting in a vet clinic to wrangling antelope? Well, that's, that was a little bit better. I like the hands-on. So I ended up studying zoology at Michigan State. Uh, and I knew, cause I knew it had something to do with animals. Uh, but it wasn't most of my fellow colleagues, students at the time were pre-vet. Did that wasn't for me. And mm-hmm. so then actually after I graduated from college, I took a little bit of leap of faith and I traveled for about two years. I backpacks of America, Central America, parts of South Africa, Zambia, and just Yeah, really, that'll do it. Yeah, just I want it helped open my eyes to just what was happening in the world and what other people, how they live. And anyways, when I came back I needed to like get a real job. Uh, there was an opening at a zoo. And I said, well, that's, I mean, I've seen wildlife. I've seen declining issue, global environmental issues worldwide here in the U.S., but of course overseas as well. And, you know, maybe I can help some of these animals in their current situation to help their counterparts in the wild. And so they only hired me because I had horse experience and they had really naughty horses at the zoo that nobody could wrangle. And so... I was hired for that. And then I moved up the ladder and started by the, by the end, I was, yes, grabbing antelope by their horns and wrangling kangaroos. And then I, I got into my thirties and I said, this is, this is, this is too much for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going back to grad school, man. Uh, so yeah. no, I, I had other paths being with the zoo and I actually on a zoo scientist and animal welfare scientist and things like that had really opened my eyes, to, uh, different disciplines and other things that were going on in, animal science. And so yeah, I pursued my degree, my master's and PhD in animal science, University of Florida. So, well, yeah, so, so def- yeah, definitely not linear, very much ebb and flow, figuring out what I like, what I don't like, or I like parts of this, but I want more of this or that. Uh, and I think that's okay. I, I think it's good to be open and learn what your skill set is and how to, how to best maximize it. Yeah, I love that. That's a really beautiful story about having a good transferable skill that you can just, you know, be really good at one thing and you can use it in multiple situations. Yeah. And and now, obviously, the podcast is perfect as a passion project because I love talking and I love animals and I love science. <laughs> so there's my Venn diagram of, <laughs> yes. of, of why this works out. And I have children so I can wrangle them and that helps get it. Get those yayas out as well. See, it's so. coming. It's all coming back. You know, full circle, baby. You know it. So, <laughs> yeah. but now, Gibbs, I do want to. At being a science nerd, I definitely want to die. I keep saying that. I definitely want to get so into or dive into. into it is. It's yeah. fun. Like why not? <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do want to dive into your research, and if you could touch on a little bit about what shark species you study and what your current research is that has you so excited. So uh, I've actually had about a decade, or sorry, over a decade of researching sharks. I've worked with multiple different species, the large, middle-sized, and small ones. Um, So anywhere from great whites and tiger sharks to hammerheads, threshers, uh, ragged tooth sharks, and even our little reef and cat sharks, which you cannot forget. They are also very unique, special, and as cute and cuddly as a shark can get. Um... And one thing that I I love about my experiences that I've had with sharks is it's 
taught me that these animals are not a monolith because you think about sharks, you just think about like, you know, kind of a, you know, torpedo shaped gray animal. And that's the end of the story. But I've seen that they're so vastly diverse just with even within just sharks alone. And even the, their names indicate how unique they are. Uh, they have vastly different appearances, behaviors, their genetics and physiology are unique. And there's always a different angle about sharks. And at the moment, I'm currently studying uh, the DNA of a rare breed of black-tipped reef shark in the Maldives that has developed some really devious-looking spots uh, all along their body. And I'm, for this, I'm using cutting-edge genetic research or genetic techniques, you know, your advanced tracking tools like uh, chips we put in these sharks to follow them around. And I'm making my foray now into using uh, robotics, machine learning, microfluidics, so I can, you know, use technology to understand these species more holistically and also more efficiently. And I think you can, the tools that I'm trying to develop now, I'm sort of working to build a, you can call it a robot in a way. I'm hoping that we build something that is easy to develop and accessible for people all around the world to use this tool to understand what shark populations are looking like in their, in their oceans. Well, yeah, Gibbs. And I was wondering if you could help us understand how studying their DNA and their genomics relates back to their conservation and their population numbers. Yeah. So this is something that I feel like it's, uh, it's not something that people really, you know, grasp very easily because it's, it's, it's kind of a, a difficult conceptual leap to like, okay, you have the DNA of an animal. How do you learn about an animal's population from that? And from what I can say is that, you know, if you go through nature, there are secrets and stories hidden in all sorts of places. And DNA contains some of those stories. So in the same way, for example, that a geological record can tell us how the dinosaurs lived. DNA can do the exact same thing, but you only need a tiny piece of tissue, no more than a fingernail, to get all that information out of this shark's evolutionary history. And that's because um, in the genetic code of all living things, that's, you know, you, you have your bacteria, you have your plants, you know, pets, livestock, wildlife, there's a record of that animal's generational history. So all the things that happened through their, um, from their recent past to their historical past are their signatures of that uh, hidden in the genome of each of these animals. And the techniques we use can sort of piece apart what these signatures are and they can reveal based on an, how you interpret it, what happened. And of late, I've been really interested in looking at the, the very, um, long evolutionary history, a long timeline of what my sharks have been going through. And I'm using this uh, technique called effective, uh, historical effective population size estimates, where I look at the shark's history over a time scale of, of epochs. And what I found actually kind of, uh, you know, made me wonder about, you know, these animals and what they're going through. And I found that there was a pretty big dip in their population size 
around 700,000 years ago. So curiously, I went back to um, the geological records and looked at the timeline of what was happening 700,000 years ago. And in that period, that was, um, that was one of the glacial periods where you have these ice sheets that sort of encroach closer and closer to the equator. And Earth was quite cold during those periods. And for reference, uh, our ancestors were just figuring out how to use fire during that period. So you can imagine, it was pretty harsh for us. And I have to wonder, you know, was it harsh for these sharks too? Like maybe the ice sheets got so far down that it really caused, uh, you know, water temperatures to plummet. Or maybe the, the fish stocks they normally fed on were not as available because of the cold. I don't know. We'll never, maybe we'll never know what the answer is. But I like to, I like to dream about the possibilities. It's, it really fascinates me. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I... One little piece of shark tissue from these black tips can, and of course, multiple samples, I would imagine, but that they can give you so much important information. Mm -hmm. And so by learning about what happened in their past or theorizing about it, how does that help them in the future? Because there's a lot of environmental pressures right now for sharks as far as global climate change and habitat destruction and many, many problems for our poor shark friends in the ocean. So does that relate to what their future looks like as well? You know, I think one thing that I, I've been able to, uh, I've been asking the same question too, that you just asked, like, uh, you know, how are, how do, what does this tell me about these shark populations, which I know already are extremely exploited globally. And one thing that I've thought about a lot is like, these sharks have gone through multiple periods, multiple extinctions. Um, and six mass extinctions, if you will. And each time they've managed to adapt, thrive, and recover. Um, and some of these events were incredibly destructive, but still the sharks remained. Now I'm looking at their populations and seeing that there is, there's not that much diversity left amongst some of these uh, species. For example, I'm looking at black tip reef sharks in the Maldives. It's very clear that these, these animals have gone through a very tight bottleneck and that they've begun to uh, do inbreeding. Essentially, they don't have uh, enough diversity in the population, so they end up having to mate with individuals that are related to them. Out of all these extinctions, it's, it seems that humanity is going to be the worst of them all. And I have hope that these sharks you know, will bounce back. They are resilient animals. They are, you know, they, they have unique genetic and physiological capabilities that, you know, many other animals don't have, but even they're struggling. So I think it's, it's really an indication that we have to start taking better care of our planet and we need to do it like now, like yesterday. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And that's, that's why we're here today. I know that's what yeah. Nat National Geographic is doing with their shark fest this month and your work. Uh, so many scientists out there are trying to beat the clock on this, that's for sure. Mm. And so I know too that being a scientist and definitely being a graduate student has many challenges. Uh, field work is intense oh, yeah. and, it's, and talk about not being linear. You, you never know what you're going to get from day to day. And then of course, 
Same thing when you're utilizing all these new technologies as you're talking about AI and robotics. So many challenges being a scientist, which I'm sure you're attracted to that because that's why you're here talking today. Otherwise, you would have gone back to med school, right? <laughs> if you did. Yeah. Not that med school is easy, but yeah. but yes, there's a ton of challenges um, in graduate school, especially studying wildlife uh, in this day and age. So I have to ask you one of my favorite questions from my exit exam in graduate school. So get looking ahead at knowing what you know with your research, uh, having the experiences that you have had and challenges you had being a researcher. If somebody gave you millions of dollars to work on your dream shark conservation, shark genomic project, how would you use that? And who would you collaborate with? Like, where are the missing holes? What, sh what do we need to do to help save these sharks? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, and the answer is all, not running away to go live on the Maldives. <laughs> no, I that, mean, I would say like one of the, and, and honestly, the, the reason I have difficulty answering this question is because I, I want to do everything, you know, and, and that's like, I think that's what keeps me like uh, motivated and, and actively uh, pursuing different research endeavors. But if I had to pick one thing, a million dollars, I would, I don't know. I mean, you probably need millions of dollars in this day, <laughs> at this day and age, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, what kind of boat can I buy for a million dollars? I would just, I would get the most insanely outfitted research vessel. It's, it's got, you know, facilities to do genomic work. It's got, uh, you know, essentially a full laboratory. It's got, uh, you know, ROVs, submarines, helicopters. Basically, um, what's that Wes Anderson movie? The, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou? I want to do that. I want to do that for like the rest of my life. I'm sure that million dollars will be spent well. So if you're, if you have a million dollars you want to spend and you're listening to this, call me. My number is, is going to be in the description. <laughs> we will definitely have your, uh, your email and all your social media accounts. So yeah. yes, or reach out to me at all creatures podcast. I will, we will, we will definitely fund Gibbs and his million dollar research project because Yay, that's not, this is you why do, I came. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and you do, you need equipment. I mean, that's the thing is it's a lot of times so many of the people I've worked with in labs were using like centrifuges from like 50 years ago and they break sometimes and we lose samples and we're like, well, we can't get funding for like the main piece of equipment we use. And it's just, it's really sad that funding for science in general in the last 20 or 30 years at least in the u.s in some ways has gone down especially for wildlife of course other fields has had more money but so yeah so maybe we'll make that a long-term goal gibbs because that i i would ride on that would there be like a place to like stay on the boat and oh and just, yeah awesome i mean okay. there, there's gonna be you know sweets and game rooms and, oh. and all the leisure that you need, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I'm, a big, a big TV room so we can watch the Nat Geo programming while we're, uh, during the downtime, which I'm sure there's tons of when you're collecting field research, right? Yeah. We're just going to have Shark Fest on repeat. It's going to be a great time. Come through. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But getting back to the sharks, yeah. Gibbs, I know that you've caged dove with great whites and obviously you've studied so many species of sharks and you've wrangled them. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on what it is like to cage dive with a great white, but then also if you could discuss some shark behavior 
that people might not be as familiar with because they think of them as these killing predator machines. Can you talk on their personalities or do they have a softer side? What was your experience? Yeah. Okay. So I worked at a great white shark cage diving company for six years. And, you know, after going out to sea every day, I would sometimes just think, you know, I've kind of seen it all. Work is getting kind of boring. And just as, you know, you're starting to sort of dissociate from what you're doing, you know, these sharks pull some tricks out of the bag that you've never seen. And actually, in particular, we had one shark whose name was Trix, spelled with an X. And she changed my whole perception about sharks just alone. She was the only shark basically I ever needed to see. And she seemed to have this maturity and curiosity about the environment and the, the things around her that I hadn't really seen in other sharks. Uh, she sported this, this distinctive uh, chunk that was ripped out of the trailing edge of her dorsal fin, so that's how we always knew it was her. And something I noticed is while we were out on the boat observing sharks, it would always seem like she was around us observing us. And it's, it, it sounds creepy, but I promise it was, it was, yeah, it was an out-of-body experience. So what she would do is she would come around the boat, she'd swim past the bait, you know, it's, we're essentially swimming in a, or we're boating in a chum slick here. She swims past the, the bait, past the cage, and comes right up to the bait handler. So, you know, I'm standing there on the, on the edge of the boat, and this shark is now right at my feet, essentially, and she spy hops. And, and the spy hop is this behavior where the sharks literally pop their head out of the water to see what's going on in their surroundings. And she would just sit there, like looking at us, looking at all the people that were on the boat. And, you know, you... It, it was so weird because I, you know, you couldn't figure out what was going on. Is this shark? Is this a shark still? Or what am I looking at? Yeah, this is a humpback whale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, what is going on here? You know, what, what she was trying, what she told me through those actions is, she, number one, she was incredibly intelligent, but also aware. She was aware that we were there. She saw us. And I almost feel like she was looking for a connection weirdly enough and you know occasionally she's she's there i'm there her head is right in front of me and i would sometimes cheekily reach my hand out and well you know <laughs> i shouldn't finish that story um, have, uh, what are you talking about absolutely <laughs> you, you can't do that you can't leave oh a my finger. god okay so yeah some people might not like this but i would reach out and and again, she's, she's right there, nose out of the water, right in front of you. And you just put your hand on her nose. And you see her eyes roll back and she starts gaping and her mouth opens super wide. And then she goes on her belly and then floats, like just floats. It starts to sink even a little bit all the way down to the bottom. And it's like I replay some of these moments of my life in my head sometimes and I'm like that was not real there was no way that was real that's a fever dream for sure but it happened it really happened and sharks do this 
Yeah, and that's definitely not a predatory behavior. I don't know much about shark behavior. I'm more of a mammal behavior. It feels like behavior. puppy dog behavior. I was going to say that. I mean, I don't know exactly what type of behavior that is, but it definitely doesn't sound aggressive or predatory or anything. I mean, you don't expose your vulnerable belly, your innards, uh, in a, when you're being a predator, right? No, yeah, wow. I, 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 wow. I've never found That's... an explanation for what that no, is. No, but I mean, but, yeah. but it but it helped provide you with that connection that these that these creatures are they're so intelligent and and the more I do this podcast and study different species that I, I definitely don't specialize in, just learning how intelligent they are and and maybe they don't uh, have the intelligence of a toddler like a, a parrot or a dolphin things like that that have are very what we humans consider highly intelligent mm-hmm. but that some of their senses their six senses seven senses are to me almost alien-like and are a superpower all to their own and we are on many species especially ones in the ocean which are extremely hard to study and learn about i feel like we're just at the tip of the iceberg of even beginning to understand what they're thinking and how intelligent they are. I mean, these sharks have survived longer than the dinosaurs, so they have to be doing something right. Yeah, and they are older than trees, which is, to me, one of the most astonishing things. Like, I, they've been here for a while. I mean, yeah. it, it just gives me goosebumps a little bit thinking about how, how you know, vast time is, and then you just still had sharks there. Like just They were just still there. I, I got to say, one of my other favorite things about sharks that that i'd seen is their their social networks and generally people don't really think of sharks as social animals but i think well i see this a lot in black tip reef sharks uh, they're they're small uh, especially in comparison to all the other predators that are in their environment uh, like tiger sharks and sometimes lemon sharks nurse sharks and you have to wonder when you have a shark that small what strategies are they using to survive? And occasionally you'll, you'll um, you know, stumble upon a shoal of these baby black tips and they're swimming in circles around each other, almost like a seance, okay? So there's like three, four, five of them all swimming in a circle, all sort of looking at each other, feeling each other out and something about that just screams you know social cohesion you know bond building and these animals work together they work together number one we've seen to somehow identify threats they also mob hunt um, other prey together and you know from what i can tell it is just a way of them you know yeah getting close having some kind of cohesion and I've seen the adults do this in some capacity as well. Um, not entirely sure what this, what this corralling behavior is exactly. But that was just, yeah, another thing that I'm just like, what? Sharks don't do that. And then they just do. So there's so much to learn about them. And, and I mean, and they do live in this harsh habitat. It's hard to study. And, but yeah, I think, like I said, I think there's so much more we're going to find out as we hopefully do invest more money energy and time into understanding these creatures that have been just so 
cast as evil killing machines. But as you say, they're they want their bellies tickled. Just kidding, don't do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, you didn't even hear that from me or from Gibbs, uh, but no, but that they have definitely personalities and different behaviors and social behaviors, which I mean, to interact social and mob hunt and all these types of, uh, types of interactions you're talking about is definitely a sign of intelligence that us humans can relate to. So there's a lot more to the story and that's why I'm so happy that you're here today and that also National Geographic is dedicating a month of programming to help educate yes. people, excite people about sharks so we can conserve them, have them here. They belong here. They've been here for millennia and and then also learn more about them. So, Gibbs, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a background on how you went from doing your research and shark wrangling uh, and cage diving to now being on National Geographic and being featured in some of their programming. Yeah, so I had already been working with sharks uh, for quite a while. And, you know, we would get film crews uh, that would jump on our boats uh, every year, uh, multiple times a year. And, you know, there was always cameras around and they, was always, they would always have presenters. I mean, we famously took out uh, Michael Phelps uh, at one point and a whole host of other, you know, big names in the shark world. And, yeah, it just, you know, it, it got me thinking about, you know, my role in all of this, because I was a scientist, I was living in these sharky places and studying these animals all the time. And I, I love science communication. And I also think it's, it's a great way to change people's social attitudes to that, to issues, you know, going back to that Jaws effect, you need to tell more positive stories about sharks. And, and I, and I really wanted to inhabit that space because I, I have all this research that I'm doing and and stories about these sharks I want to tell. And I, my mentor, uh, Ryan Johnson, uh, who's also going to be a part of the Shark Fest programming, you know, worked with me for a number of years, not just, you know, on a research capacity, but also in a documentary capacity. And yeah, since then, he sort of introduced me to this whole game. And uh, now I, yeah, well, I got bit. And, and I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Research and documentaries is uh, it's a dream come true. Yeah, wow, and and then the million dollar yacht shark research boat. But yeah, put yeah, those, for reals. But the <laughs> put call me, like I'm ready. But yes, but I mean, you I mean, absolutely like anybody who is an animal nerd like us and wildlife and science who doesn't want to be part of National Geographic and some of their programming and and help get people excited about their science about these creatures that we love so much. So Gibbs, you are a featured scientist on the program When Sharks Attack 360. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you could give our audience not too many spoiler alerts, so they'll watch it, but if yeah. you could talk a little bit about uh, that program and what it was like to, to film and what uh, the messaging of the program is. Yeah, right. Um, so When Sharks Attack 360, which is obviously a catchy title, you know, we just want to get you to watch. But it is actually a really heartfelt, genuine perspective on looking into the circumstances around shark attacks. And it's hosted by a diverse cast of shark scientists from all around the world doing different disciplines and different uh, and have different ideas about shark attacks. And it's I guess you could kind of say it's very Mythbusters-esque because we yeah take the uh, the shark attack 
and we use science to sort of shed light on the more mysterious aspects of shark attacks in order to give people an understanding about what could potentially be happening. Uh, because, yeah, like I, like I was saying before, sometimes these, these moments are so mysterious, that's what makes them scary. But when you see what's really happening, then you say, oh, well, we have an opportunity to actually safely interact with these animals rather than put ourselves potentially in harm's way. But I should also mention, it's not just scientists. We're not the only cast members in the show. We also invite the people who have actually had these negative shark encounters, the survivors of shark attacks. They also play a role in the show. And something that really touched me in hearing their stories is they come out of these horrific, sometimes scary incidents and they, sh they bear no hatred for sharks. And the stories that they tell are, yeah, I, I was out at sea. I got bit by a shark. You know, it was really horrible, but it happened. And I think we still need to learn how we can properly protect these animals because, you know, they deserve a place on this planet as much as we do. And it just, yeah, that really just made me feel like, man, these guys are my heroes. Like there, there's, they, they're so unselfish in the way they take these things. It's not all about me and what happened to me. It's like, they, they see the bigger context and yeah, I mean, I think, I think we don't follow their example. We're not going to have our beautiful blue wildernesses around the world for much longer because it's so easy to fall into that trap of there's been a shark attack. Well, let's go and make sure we never have another one by killing all sharks. That, that's simply not a solution. Right. Or I saw something that was like, oh, here off this beach of uh, the coast of Florida, these shark infested waters. Like, you mean their home? Like, this yeah. is... This is their home or they're traveling through and or something like that. So a lot of it isn't how things are portrayed, right? And that, yes, shark uh, shark bites do usually draw a lot of media attention because they do prey on the Jaws effect and kind of our fascination with this unknown, a lot, a lot of unknowns with this creature and some fear that people have. But in all reality, correct me if I'm wrong, like you're more likely, I'm more likely to to die on my horse or to get death by a cow than to be even bitten by a shark, let alone die from a shark attack. And so, yeah, I, I think you're more that. likely to be bitten by a human New Yorker in the human infested streets of, uh, of North Northeast America. You know, I love, I'm adding that to my statistics. I love that. Yeah. Shout out it's to our real. New York fans. We love you, but it is true. Yeah. And if you also have money for a boat, call me. <laughs> exactly exactly oh uh, yeah so it is uh it, it is an important it's an important sidebar too because the other thing too when i look at the shark statistics they uh the florida museum here's the one that tracks them and they they actually have two categories as far as provoked versus unprovoked right so mm -hmm. if you are touching a shark uh nose which we're not promoting on this podcast or tickling no, your bellies which we're not, we're not in promoting. no way shape or form are we doing not that? Pro but that's that would be a provoked you know a provoked attack if they did if they did bite you mm -hmm. so yeah there's like the unprovoked versus provoked shark interaction and then there's just the bite versus the act of death and the death numbers are very 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 low and i think they're actually down last year uh, from previous year so but and considering how many people go into the ocean to swim, right? That's the other thing too. Is there's so 
I think I'm hopeful, uh, especially after hearing your story, that there's ways that we can live in peace with these guys and gals and, and continue to learn more about them, right? Coexistence, that's the key. And so, Gibbs, since you are so well-rounded and you've studied so many species of shark and you've been on boats everywhere, I know this is a really broad question, but I wonder if you could just give us a brief overview of shark conservation and the populations of some of the species that you work with, especially those in the Maldives or on the coast of East Africa. Like, how are their populations doing? Yeah, well, uh, in short, not great. And oftentimes, when we sharkies talk about conservation, we, we should more often than not point to the cousins of sharks, which are the batoid species, which includes rays, skates, and sawfish. And together, the sharks and these rays, they form a group called elasmobranchs. And by and large, the vast majority of elasmobranchs that are threatened with extinction are the batoid species. And for example, in East Africa, we used to have one of the most prolific batoids on the planet called the sawfish. They used to inhabit our waters and they sort of look like these flattened sharks and they have these noses, which are called rostrums that have these spikes that come out of the side of them. And it kind of looks like a medieval bludgeoning tool. It's sick. It's really <laughs> awesome. Um, and they, they use that to kill their prey. So they like sort of slash their prey, stab them a couple times, and then they go over and, and eat them. And it must be a sight to watch a sawfish predate. Um, but today in East Africa, there is not a chance you will ever see a sawfish, let alone a sawfish eating. And, um, and that's because, yeah, markets and trade and commercial whatevers have come in and and fished these animals out of our our backyard, our oceanic backyard, to to the point of extinction. And no one knows if there are even any sawfish left in East Africa. No one has seen them, and it breaks my heart that I'm never ever going to be able to go back home to Kenya, dive in the ocean, and see a sawfish. It's it's simply uh, it's a pipe dream at this stage. So not great, but. Uh, this is the reality of it. And I think we have to accept our part in this in order to find a way of going forward. Um, yeah. And so it's fact of the matter. I know it is, it is heartbreaking. Uh, is there, is there anything being done in East Africa uh, to help the urgency of the issues of overfishing and population decline for some of the lasmobranchs in that area? Uh, to, to my knowledge, there's not a lot being done and there's not much that has been done, which is exactly why we are in the situation we are now. And in many ways, I feel like I have a fairly complicated relationship with the term conservation because, you know, I look at the history of my country, for example, for the sixties and, and in Kenya and even over about a hundred years ago, uh, we had lots of wildlife. And, you know, after that colonial period, we had less, but also less people living in these wild areas. I mean, we had, uh, for example, a tribe in Kenya called the Maasai that live amongst lions and they've lived amongst lions for generations. Yet, as it stands, 
lions have dropped in in their in their population numbers, and the Maasai have also been pushed off their land. There's a correlation there, and this is also happening in our marine spaces. And I feel like, in some way, you know, we had less animals after the colonial period is left, and then we started doing conservation, and now we have even less. You know, the last two white rhinos are, you know, are literally on a thread, you know, and with their ways, you know, that it's going to break. But, you know, we have so few animals left in our, in our country. And I think one of the things that I think could help improve uh, the, the productivity of our wild spaces is giving the land back to the people, allowing them to live in these spaces and, and, choose how these spaces are governed in the way that they had done for millennia. And I would hope that that changes things. You know, the way I look at the situation now is that it is very much out of the people's hands um, because our governments, you know, disenfranchised people, because colonialism happened and, and left people um, sort of, uh, yeah, ghosts in their own country. Well, yeah. I mean, and I mean, there's no way that the local fishermen on the pristine white sand beaches of the Kenya shoreline, they weren't overfishing the sawfish. That wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't the local people. They're, uh, they did it, it, bigger industries internationally. I mean, it's that that's driving at these big markets and big issues that are, as you mentioned, not part of the actual local people that live there, but they're the ones that suffer from it. So it there's is a the really more... great book about this called uh, The Big Conservation Lie okay. um, by Mordecai Ogata. He's mm -hmm. one of my heroes, and he really points to the to some of the you know hypocrisies around conservation. You know, I, I like to call them the champagne conservationists uh, who who say we need to protect animals. Yet, as it stands, we'll also promote big game hunting, which I like to call poaching. It's very backwards, and, and it's it's patently dishonest to blame people that live in these that have lived there and say like, "Hey, yeah, you guys are." Sometimes they run into an elephant and the elephant dies, and it's like, "Well, see, this is what they do." And it's like, "Well, that's not really that's not really uh, yeah an honest way of, of examining the situation." Yeah, it's yeah. it's a. Uh, I don't really have a <laughs> a shining golden answer for this one. Nor should I. Don't think there is one. And, and honestly, that book sounds like the exact perfect light summer read I was looking for. So I'm going to pick it up. It's and great. Yeah, it's great. yeah. And I and I'm making a joke about being. It was not going to be a light summer read. I already okay. I already finished the, the trashy novel for the summer. I'm ready to actually use my use my brain again and uh, and be challenged because I mean and we and being an environmentalist and talking to so many on this podcast. Um, a lot of times it'll come up about greenwashing, right? And I, yeah. And just the little bit they told me about this book, I'm, I'm super curious. I'm definitely going to get it. It's that, you know, it's almost maybe like conservation washing. And and of course, it's not sure. everybody in every organization and stuff like that, but how it's it just makes it so hard for the public because it's like, now you have to do your research. Is this real conservation or is this not good conservation? And it's it's hard, right? Like it, I it agree. makes yeah. more work for just the local people, the people that are just trying to do right. And, uh, but I have to wonder 
maybe that's how they want it, right? They, they make it messy. And so people just throw their hands up. I don't know. I was just going to say, you know, if you really, it's, it's like you mentioned, it's really difficult to find out what conservation practices really do help. But I would just say like for, in a very local way, find out how your dollars and cents are being spent by the companies that provide your food and your energy. And I don't really say the term shark conservation anymore because conservation should be a holistic thing. Our, everything within our ecosystem is intrinsically linked. So um, if you're going to talk, if you really do care about sharks, you're going to want to protect tuna too. You're going to want to make sure that whatever you're buying and spending isn't, you know, in contributing to pollution and you will invest into carbon neutral solutions uh, for the future. And there are things, there are things that are available. Vote with your dollars, spend it there and, and be mindful about what the politicians who you gave your power to are doing with that power. Cause, cause that's how policy is going to change. Put these, um, put these politicians on the spotlight and hold their feet to the fire and make sure they work for you. I love that. Absolutely gives for our listeners out there that love the ocean, love marine life, love sharks, or want to learn more about sharks. And especially for our international listeners out there, do you have advice for someone who does get the inkling that they want to cage dive with a shark or get on a boat and do some DNA genomic work? What steps should someone take that wants to be a marine biologist? Yeah. What I've seen in my experiences is that if you really want to be successful in this field, you kind of have to relentlessly pursue uh, the end goal, which for me is learning about sharks via their DNA. And this means that you have to you know, develop your skills. You have to get yourself out there in any way you can uh, and don't really take no for an answer. Uh, keep pushing it. And, and I really think that that is going to be the cataclysm that changes uh, how things in our ocean happen. And I, I honestly hope that, you know, if there are some young listeners here that they take this to heart for the ones that want to, to become marine scientists or conservationists, go all the way, change, change the landscape because we need, we need you, you know, we need the new, uh, the new, you know, Jane Goodalls and David Attenboroughs of the world uh, coming up and we need all of them together like we we have to be on the same page about how we conserve our wild spaces because it's it's it, that's all that's what it's going to take simply absolutely well, very well said and i appreciate you taking the time with me today and sharing your journey and your expertise and your passion of course uh, it's been a great pleasure talking about all things sharks and of course all things wildlife and as always, I have to give a huge shout out to National Geographic for the awesome work they do, inspiring people all over the world, helping educate them and uh, getting them excited about sharks and our oceans and all the species that uh, live, in, live in the ocean. So I appreciate them and their time. And I look forward to this Shark Fest programming. Mm -hmm. I'll be watching all month. My kids love it. And they always ask really good questions. And now I get to, and now I get to say like, oh, there's Gibbs. I know him. <laughs> So uh, it'll be my, I'll have stars in my eyes. So that'll be awesome. And for, for our listeners out there that want to learn more about your work in particular and or buy you a million dollar 
sharp research though. Uh, how can they get a hold of you? Do you have a, a social media uh, platform? And wh where can they learn more about your work or more about sharks and their biology and their conservation? Yeah, so I like to share updates uh, that are going on with my research on my Instagram. That is Gibbs Kuguru, at Gibbs Kuguru, which is my first name and my last name. I, yeah, I occasionally will post something uh, fun that I saw in the field or an update about uh, something that I've recently learned about these animals. So yeah, you can check me out there. Awesome. And just so our listeners know, that's Gibbs, G-I-B-B-S, uh, Kuguru, uh, K-U-G-U-R-U. So give him a, a like and a follow for sure. And of course, National Geographic, if you're not already following them on social, social media platforms, you are definitely missing out because they do incredible work, awesome programming, and they uh, help us help bring nature to our front door and help help us become aware and fall in love and get motivated and excited to maybe make big changes, of course, become a marine biologist or even do little local changes within your community, uh, getting involved. And as Gibbs mentioned, understanding how you spend your dollars on food, on energy and little things can really change the wildlife spaces and places in your own hometown, but then also even internationally. Like it's all connected. It has a big effect. So a little bit of education and research on what you're doing individually can help go a long way. And then also by following some of these mentors like Gibbs on social media and National Geographic, All Creatures Podcast, of course, uh, we can help shed a little bit of light too on what's going on and um, just keep the conversation going. So Thank you, Gibbs. It was a real pleasure meeting you. I look forward to celebrating when you finish your PhD and <laughs> you, it's a really exciting time when you just all of a sudden you're done and uh, it's a, it's a, such a big deal. And I will be the first one to call you Dr. Gibbs Kuguru and hopefully be on your research boat uh, filming and uh, interviewing you. So please keep yeah. up the good work. It's so important. We need you. The sharks need you. And I, I, I look forward to following your journey. Uh, as time moves forward. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. And I'm definitely going to be following All Creatures Podcast. So keep up the good work. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Yeah, cheers. Bye. <laughs>